Masechet Megillah, Daf 6. We're going to start off today talking about geography, and then we're going to go uh, get into the case of when there's a second Adar, uh, we're supposed to read Megillah and do the other mitzvot in the first Adar or the second Adar, a fascinating discussion there. Okay, we begin with geography. Geography is important because we have to know whether a certain city was uh, around during the time of Yerusha Benun, and if it had a wall back then, in order to know whether it, we read on the 15th or not. While we're talking about cities, we're going to see a fascinating discussion about the tension between Jewish and Roman cities, representing tension between the two peoples. There are a lot of important information here. And we begin starting off with something that Chizkiah said. Uh, he mentioned that Rakat is, is Tiberius. Um, we, we, well, he, he wasn't sure uh, what, uh, if Tiberius is there from Yoshua Binun or not. And then we said, well, look, in Pasuk in Yoshua says Rakat. And we have a tradition that Kat is Tiberius, and therefore you see it had a wall. Well, only had three walls, and so we have, have the rest of the discussion. Okay, we're going to question this, this whether that ancient city called Rakat is in fact Tiberius or not. A lot of ancient cities had more than one name. Rakat was probably the old name, and then eventually it was renamed in honor of the emperor Tiberius. And so from then on, many people called it Tiberius, but there's always locals, old timers that call it the old name, especially if they don't really like Tiberius and don't want to give him that honor. Okay, so that's the question. Is Rakat, Rakat in fact, the same as Tiberius? Um, Rabbi Yochanan tends to say no. Uh, says, when I was a child, I uh, said something, and then I asked later the elders, and turned out that my uh, intuition as a child was correct. And one of the things was that Hamat Zotiberia, Hamat, another ancient city mentioned, uh, is Tiberius, not Rakat, but rather Hamat. So this goes against what we just said. It's called Hamat from the language of hot because there are hot springs under from the underground aquifers in Tiberias. And the Rakat Zosipori. Rakat is the place that is called Sipori. <coughs> um, beforehand, he said Rakat was was Tiberia. No, Hamat is Tiberia. And so why is Sipori called Rakat? Because it's raised up, just like a bank of river is raised up uh, over the over the water, so too uh, this city is higher than its surroundings. And a third identification, Kineret Zoginosar, the Kineret uh, uh, area is the same as Ginosar, which means harp, because the fruit that grows in the land around the Kineret and Ginosar is so sweet that it's as sweet as music that comes from a harp. Another long agada that we saw once upon a time about the giant fruit and delicious fruit of Ginosar. Okay, so that's the, the, what Rabbi Yochanan said. And uh, according to him, uh, in fact, Hamat is Tiberia and Rakat is Sipori. But not everyone agrees with that. Does anyone think that Rakat is not Tiberia? Uh, Rakat is for sure Tiberia. So now what you said, Rakat is Sipori. No, no, Rakat is Tiberia, right? And that's what we said originally. And he's going to prove it. He's going to prove it from poetry that uh, was, used to be sung during funerals, funeral poetry. Um, I once uh, presented a paper in Harvard University on funeral poetry in the Talmud. It was a fascinating topic. Um, and uh, you can learn a lot of things from it because a lot of times this poetry, first of all, is very, one of some of the most beautiful poetry in, Tam in Talmudic times. And you can learn a, lot, learn a lot from the references and the style of it. So here's one short little poem that they used to say. Uh, when someone would die here in Bavel and then they were sent to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, Hatam Safti Le Gadol Hu When it got to Israel, they would say, uh, this person was a giant in Sheshach. Sheshach is mentioned in Yirmiyah. It's an atbash of Babel, right? Shin, the second to last letter, is like Bet, the second letter. And uh, Chaf and Lamed are in the middle. So um, it's a cipher. So he was great in Babel. Veshem lo berakat. And his, his, his reputation extended all the way till Rakat. And they're saying that in Tiberias, which proves that Rakat is Tiberias. 
And when the uh, coffin would eventually get there, this is what they would say. You lovers of the remnant of the people, the, uh, uh, the residents of Rakat, so in other words, they would call to the people that lived in the Rakat, which is Tiberias, which because that's where they went to, that's where he went to be buried. Um, residents of Tiberias slash Rakat go out and receive uh, the dead from the deep land, uh, the deep lowland being Bavel. And so they go twice in this poem, Rakat is mentioned, and they know they were there that that, that refers to Tiberia. Right, so that's a pretty good proof. And furthermore, one time when the Bizera died, <clears throat> the, the following eulogizer, this is very interesting, they were professional eulogizers, you'd have to go and hire one, and they were experts at writing uh, beautiful poetry and, and singing with a, uh, with, a, uh, with a dirge. And uh, people would test out the eulogizers, you know, who's the best eulogizer. And so this is a, this is a whole profession. Uh, so the land of Shin'ad, meaning Bavel, gave birth uh, to Vialda. Uh, um, and the land, the, the land of the deer, meaning Israel, raised up its, its beloved, its delight. So even though the Bizera was born in Babel, but he grew up in Israel. Woe is to Rakat, because now Rakat lost to her precious vessel. And we know that he lived in, in, uh, in Tiberia. And so it calls Tiberia Rakat. And there you go. Right. So we have absolute proof that Rakat is Tiberia. Uh, so now that we go back to the other statement, El Amad, it probably should be here, Rava, Hamat Zo Hamegerar, Rakat Zo Tiberia. So let's establish, uh, fix what we said before. In fact, Hamat is referring to. Uh, the, the springs of Gedad. Rakat is, in fact, Tiberia, as we just said. Kinet is Ginosa, that we can agree with. And why is Tiberia called Rakat? Even the most empty ones in the city, even the people that are the least uh, observant, are full of Misvot like Rimon. And certainly the, that's the least. So certainly the best are even more than that. Rabbi Yirmiya Amar, Rakat Shema, Velama Nikra Shema Tiberia. Rabbi Yirmiya says, really, the original name is Rakat, so why do we call it Tiberia? Sheyoshevet Betibura Hashel Eretz Yisrael, because it sits at the center of Israel. It's kind of like its belly button. That's the center. So Tiberia and Tibura, that was a play on words. Ravama Rakat Shema, Velama Nikra Shema Tiberia, Shehetovar Iyata. It's in fact, he agrees it's called Rakat, but why is it called Tiberia? Because Tovad uh, Iyat, like two words, it's a, it looks good. It's a beautiful city to look at. Okay, obviously, the real reason it was called Tiberia was in honor of the Emperor Tiberius. And so, either much later on in Babel, they forgot about that and didn't know who Tiberius was, uh, more likely, they didn't, did not want to give honor to. Uh, a Roman emperor and say such a great Jewish city full of Sadiqim is named after a Roman emperor. And so they use the name and make a play on words to talk about other uh, positive aspects of the city. All right, good. Now, Amar Ze'ayra, Kitron Zosipori, other identifications, the land of Kitron, which is mentioned in Tanakh, is the city of Sipori. Because it's up on top of a mountain, perched up there like a bird. Kitron Sipori, hold on, is that true? In Shoftim, it says Zibulun did not uh, acquire, did not inherit the land of Kitron, which means they should have, they didn't get a chance to, uh, but, uh, but otherwise they should have because it's in their uh, allotment it's, uh, of their tribe. And uh, now, and we also know that Zivulun was not happy with its portion uh, of the land that it was apportioned. Zivulun, they jeopardized their lives to death. In other words, they would go and fight extra because the land that they got was not so great and they wanted more land. And so they were unhappy. 
What were they so unhappy about? Even if they got a, a good, a fair share, a good share, they looked at the at Naftali, their brethren, and saw that Naftali had these beautiful fields, and they didn't have fields, uh, so they were upset. This is to, to, my, to my brothers, you gave them fields and vineyards, and to us, you gave mountains and hills. Very hard to uh, farm on mountains and hills. You gave them land. To us, you gave uh, seas and rivers. Can't, can't grow things there. Hashem responded to Zivulun and said, don't you worry. You are near the water and that's where the chilazon is. The chilazon is that uh, uh, snail from which we get the techelet. And that's very expensive. Archaeologists actually found mounds and mounds of chilazon shells, uh, which shows that even back then these were used for dyes and was very important, very expensive. And these are timunechol. These are hidden under the sand. So don't worry about it. You have a great land. Taner Rav Yosef. Sifuneh zechilazon. Timuneh zotarit. Chol zosichukit levana. Making a darashan. A pasuk of all the riches that Zivulun actually had. Sifuneh hidden means the chilazon. Also, treasures chilazon hidden is some sardines that were there. And chol, even the sand that it has, was special white sand that you could make out of it, these white glass vessels. And here's the sardines that were there. So there were lots of wonderful things there. Here's the snail. Some people think it's a cuttlefish. It doesn't look as fun uh, as the murex trunculus, which most people think the techel it comes from, and you can go and buy some now. So now Zivulun is afraid. Maybe some people will go and steal uh, these uh, the snails and, and take it for themselves without telling me, and I won't be able to benefit from it. There, they will sacrifice offerings of righteousness. Like, don't worry, everybody will act in righteousness. Anyone who takes the, your, your uh, natural resources without paying for them, his business will not prosper. He won't make any money from it. So don't you worry. You have really wonderful things. Okay, now back to the why we brought this in the first place. If in fact Kitron is Sipori, because that's right, we identified Kitron Sipori. Now we're challenging it because if Kitron is Sipori, then why would Zibulun be upset about his, his portion? Sipori is a wonderful place. It's great land there. Maybe you're going to say that this doesn't have great land that is flowing with milk and honey, a way of saying very, very rich land that can produce everything. I went, I saw the great land of Sipori, and it was 16 by 16 meal. That's the same as four by four parsa. I'm going to, we're going to need that. Uh, conversion for a minute. So it has a nice big piece of land that is absolutely wonderful. And maybe you'll say, well, maybe that's a little bit of land, but not as much as there as the other Shivatim have had. That's not true. I saw all, I calculated all the best lands all throughout Israel. And it was the same as the distance from Bekove to the fortress at Tul Bakni. And how much is that? It was the same as 22 by 6. Uh, and uh, if you divide that into 12, it's actually less than four by four. So you, just by having Tiberia, have more than your share of the best land of Zavad Chalav Udvash. And therefore, you should be very happy. So why were they upset? Nevertheless, they would rather have fields and vineyards. And you could tell this from another pasuk where it says Naftali was on high places. And so they had mountains. And yes, while it had good, good land, 
But when it's mountainous, it's very difficult. They'd rather have just regular good land that is flat and so that they can uh, make their, their, their vineyards and, their, and plow their fields. And so that is the story of Zivulun and the identification of, um, of their land. Okay. And now is now is where we get to the identification of some lands as uh, belonging to the Romans. So in Sefania it says Ekron will be uprooted. Now, what is Ekron? Ekron was some some person in the time of Sefania. Who's he referring to? Zo bat Edom. This is referring to Kesaria, which is the daughter of Edom. Kesaria, you can go there now. My brother happens to live there. Uh, it's a beautiful city. Back in, uh, back in the Talmudic times and Second Temple times, uh, this was the seat of the Roman government. That's where they, they controlled Israel from Caesarea. So saying that it's daughter of Edom is correct. This is a, uh, basically a Roman city. And probably the majority of it was Greeks and, and Romans, not Jews. Although, of course, there was also a Jewish community there. It sits between the sands. In fact, the city was built on sand. It's amazing uh, technology of uh, um, uh, 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 cement that, that dries underwater and is, is built on that, hydraulic cement. Uh, and this city was a thorn in the side of Israel during the times of the Greeks, right? Because that's always where the Roman army would come and attack from. And one day when the Hashmonaim were able to conquer them uh, and conquer this city, they called it the captured tower of Shir. Uh, this is based on the fact that it was named after a Stratton, and then in Jewish sources, it was known, known as Sharshon. So Sharshon Tower became shortened into Migdal Shir. Uh, okay, and that's when, uh, the, when this is one time when the Roman army was going through a narrow passage back to Caesarea, and the Jewish army was able to uh, push them down the mountain <coughs> because of that. They went through that narrow passage. Okay. Uh, explaining another curious pasuk in Zechariah. What does this mean that Hashem will take away the blood of his mouth and the detestable things from between his teeth and he shall be a remnant for God? It sounds like there's, some, there's someone that's very evil and they're going to be cleaned up and then they're going to be good as a remnant for God and the chief in Judah. So removing the blood is referring to the altars that the pagans had in Caesarea. Those will be removed. And uh, removing the things between their teeth, this refers to piles of stones that they would use in their pagan rituals. All that will be gone. And it will remain uh, subservient to God. That refers to the Batekinesiot and houses of learning in Edom. So while uh, Edom, meaning in Kesaria. Uh, so while Kesadia was the seat of Roman government, there always were some, some synagogues. And eventually, don't worry, hang on to that city because all the pagan stuff will be gone and the, and the, the, the Jewish buildings will remain. And then the end of the pasuk when it says, it will be a chief in Yehuda. How could something that was so terrible all of a sudden become a chief in, in Yehuda? Oh, this refers to the theaters and kirkasot is uh, circuses uh, that are there uh, in Edom, in Kesaria, that they will be converted into, Jew, into, into a Jewish city and they will use that to teach Torah in public. And this is an amazing prophecy because it has come true. Uh, if you go there, it's a fully Jewish city and uh, tourists come all over and the residents there. And I was there once on Pesach and we actually went to the Hippodrome uh, that still uh, mostly half, half exists uh, where they used to have uh, uh, horse racing uh, in honor of pagan, uh, pagan gods, all pagan ritual. And nowadays they come on Pesach, everybody's off from work. 
and celebrating and everyone brings their families and they once again bring out horses and chariots and they show uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a symbol of, of Israel and Jewish might and we have conquered and the Romans aren't here anymore and we are here to celebrate our holiday together. Uh, so it's really quite, um, uh, quite amazing and uh, heartfelt to be able to go and visit Kesaria. And uh, if someone wants to go and teach a Dafyomi Shiur in the, in the theater there, I think that would be an even, even better idea to go and do that today. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll tell my brother to go there now. Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Le'eshem zo pamyas ve'ekron te'aker zo kesari bat edom shi'ayta metropolin shel melachim. More identification, uh, children of Dan, Dan went up and fought this le- place called Leshem. <coughs> Leshem is the same as Pamyas. Um, and then it also says that Ekron will be uprooted, the same pasuk we started off, we started off with above, um, that it's the daughter of Edom, it's because that was a metropolis for kings, right? It's talking about, in fact, yes, Kesadia was where the kings, the princes, the generals of the, of the Romans uh, uh, lived. Uh, that could have two meanings. One that is that the kings are raised there. Um, and there are those who say that the kings are appointed from there. Right. So either they grow up there or they they they, they go there and then they're appointed to be in charge in that city. Now, Virushalayim. Now let's compare these two great cities. Kesaria up here and Yerushalayim, the capital of Israel. If someone says both of them have been destroyed, do not believe him. If, if someone says both are settled, also don't believe him. The idea is that there's a constant tension between Jerusalem and Kesaria, between the Jewish people and the Romans. And if the Romans are uh, up high, then they are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. And that was the situation when the rabbis were writing. Kesadia was a big city. Jerusalem was destroyed. And if it should ever turn around and uh, redemption comes and Jerusalem is built up, then that will mean that Rome is, is destroyed and the city of Kesadia is destroyed. And so therefore only one of them can be ascendant. The other one has to be destroyed. Um, if someone says one or the other, then you can believe it. I filled up one because the other is laid waste. If one is settled, the other one is destroyed. If one, the other one is settled, this one is destroyed. Okay, this Gemara did not uh, they did not uh, for, um, foretell the possibility that the Romans will be totally gone from the face of the earth and the Jewish people will be here and settle both cities as wonderful Jewish cities uh, where even prime ministers and important people live in Kesadia and the seat of government is in Jerusalem both at the same time. Uh, so we're happy to report that this Gemara was true for a long time, but not today. Another proof that only one can prosper is regarding the two children in Rivka's womb, Yaakov and Esav, and uh, the oracle says one will be stronger, stronger than the other. They will constantly be uh, fighting uh, over who, who will be ascendant, but only one can be at a time. Okay, so regarding this pasuk in Yeshaya, let favor be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In other words, even if you show, uh, show favor to the wicked, they're not going to be righteous. They're always going to be wicked. In the land of uprightness, he will, he, will, he will deal wrongfully and will not behold the majesty of God. Right? So don't bother being nice to a wicked person. Right? Even if you give a, a Nobel Peace Prize to a terrorist, they're not going to change their ways. They're going to still still be a terrorist. So here we have Rabbi Yitzchak, interestingly, uh, is <coughs> explaining a conversation between Yitzchak Avinu with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Yitzchak says to God, Yuchan Esav, do, a fa- do favors for Esav, right? Give him good things. I feel bad for him. I want him to prosper. And God says, oh, no, he's evil. And uh, Yitzchak says, maybe he just never learned righteousness, right? Maybe he didn't have the same opportunities and same education, but teach him well, and then he'll do good. No, in the land of right, even in the land of uprightness, even if he's in a place where everybody's good, he will do wrong. 
Amadam can Balgid Ege Utashem. So Yitzchak says, if that's the case and you know that, then he will not behold the majesty of God. What does this pasuk in Tehilim mean? Um, uh, grant not Hashem the desires of the wicked, further not his evil device, so that they not exalt themselves. Now, this is putting words into Yaakov Avinu's mouth. That he said before Hashem, Don't give Esav anything he wants. He's a dangerous person. Zemamo al-tafek. Zemamo can mean a muzzle or a nose ring that you use to lead an animal so that it doesn't run away. It says, don't take away that muzzle. Muzzle of, <coughs> meaning of Rome. Uh, Zo, which is Esav, right? Esav is the... Uh, is understood as the um, ancestor of, Ro- of Rome. Uh, so what is the muzzle? What can, what's the only power in the world that can hold Rome at bay so that it doesn't completely take over the world and destroy everybody? This is Germany of Edom. Germany, this refers to the Germanic tribes, uh, which there were, were many. And the Germanic tribes from uh, from north of Rome, they were their their own their own people, and they continually came and were attacking Rome, uh, Roman Empire. One time they came and reached Rome and sacked the city and stole everything from it. So these Germanic tribes were uh, very very vicious and a terrible threat to Rome. And this Gemara is saying that's good, right? Let them keep fighting. Now, uh, if if uh, if these Germans would go forth, they had the power to destroy the whole world. So it's very good that you had these two like kind of uh, two big powers, Rome and the Germ- Germanic peoples, that they were continued fighting each other, weakening each other, and that that uh, balance kept everybody else uh, safe. Uh, kind of like when you're playing Risk, if you're just in in uh, Australia, and then you know Europe and America are fighting, killing each other until there's nobody, and then you can survive and this could go win the game at the end. So that's uh, that was the geopolitics of the day. There are 300 princes with crowns tied on their heads in these uh, German tribes, and there are 365 uh, generals in Rome. And every day, uh, every guy they, they fight with each other and someone gets killed and then they have to go say who's going to take over for this Germanic tribe and that's what, we, what that's that's good let them focus their uh, their destructive energies on each other and not on the Jewish people or anybody else we had before, he says also another thing, famous statement, if someone says, I've tried, I've really put in great effort, and I, I, I didn't find it, I was not successful, don't believe them, right? You ever send a kid to go look for something, right? They could look for an hour, and then you go and you find it in one second. It means they didn't really try. If someone says, I didn't try, and I achieved this great success, also, don't believe him, right? No, no pain, no gain. It's impossible to gain something great without trying. If someone says, I labored and I succeeded, then that is believable. All this is said regarding Torah. Uh, if you're someone, <coughs> someone says, I went, I studied uh, in, uh, in three minutes, right? It was easy. Don't believe them. It's impossible, right? But if someone says, uh, you know, I really tried, I tried my best and I really delved into it and and spend time and effort, but I couldn't understand it. Don't believe them either. Anyone who puts in the, the right effort can and will uh, understand it. That's true regarding Torah, but regarding business, that is just luck of the draw. Sometimes you have people that really try very, very hard, and they get bad luck, and they don't they don't make a deal. And other people, they just uh, they try a couple of things, and immediately they strike a good deal, and that can happen. And even regarding, regarding words of Torah, we only said this regarding getting sharper, right? Uh, analyzing something in a very sharp way. In that case, you need hard work and hard work will pay off. But regarding memorizing, 
and um, you know, making sure that you, you, you preserve what you have and remember it, that takes a lot of luck also. takes effort, but even after effort, sometimes it's just hard to hold on to. People have different talents in terms of their memory. And so you have to hope that, uh, that uh, from heaven will help a person preserve their learning. Don't start up with evildoers. This is if you see that there's a time when an evildoer, the time is laughing upon him, meaning he's, have, he has a, he's having a good streak, he has a, having a period of good luck, then don't start up with him. As the Pasuk says in Mizmor 37, contend not with evildoers. Because while he's on the up, he is, he's going to be successful. If he, takes him to, if he takes you to court or you take him to court, he'll win. Right? Your judgments are far from him. He just, he just wins whether he's righteous or not. And he will see the downfall of his enemies as it says, all his enemies, uh, as for all his enemies, he hisses at them. So don't start up with someone who's on up and up, even though they're evil, because they'll only hurt you. Um, this is their time, and you know you won't be able to, to, to pick them off. Any question? We have a challenge to that. It says the opposite. Said that you are allowed to start up with and you know make fun of evil people in this world. So after all, it says those who forsake Torah praise the wicked. People don't care about Torah. They're going to go give lavish praise and kiss up to a wicked person. But people who love the Torah, they will contend and fight with an evil person. It's good to fight with evil people. And he says, yes, you are allowed to start up and bother evil people in this world. And if someone should come and whisper to you this pasuk that we quoted before that says, don't contend with evildoers, you should know that it's his own heart, his own guilt that's striking at him. In other words, if you... Uh, if you think you might be guilty also, then don't start up with an evildoer because he's going to use that against you. He knows, he knows your shortcomings also. And so that's only someone's self-doubt that is telling him not to start up with evildoers. But otherwise, if you're righteous, then you have every reason uh, to go and stop evil from doing what they, what they are doing and call them out on it. So now we have the two opposite statements. One says, don't start up. And one says, yes, you should complain about evildoers. And so what, what does he do with the second one do with this pasuk? Um, he says, don't be jealous of evil people uh, to say, I want to be like them. To say, I want to be like, so look how much fun, look what fun they're doing, going out and doing all these evil things. Look how much money they're making and look at their lifestyle and the car they're driving. I'm jealous. I want to be like that. That's what you shouldn't. That's what the Pasuk saying is don't do. So therefore, you should not be jealous of them, but you should start up with them. So now that's the question. First, we said, don't start up with them. Don't start up with them. And now we said, don't be jealous. But yes, complain about them. And the answer is, one is talking about their own personal matters. Regarding his own personal matters, don't start up. I don't know. He's, his business is doing good. Uh, it's only going to hurt you if you start up with him. But regarding matters of heaven, uh, religious matters, if you see he's doing evil things, then you have to call him out and tell him this is not allowed. You have to stop uh, stop uh, uh, um, uh, uh, stealing or, or eating non-kosher or whatever he's doing. That has to be stopped. And other, others say, no, both of are, are talking about personal matters, business matters, whatever he's doing. If you, the person doing the complaining, uh, are, are completely righteous, then you can go and start up with him, right? Because he's not going to have anything against you that he can then sue you about, right? You come with absolute righteousness and you're in a position to tell him off. But if uh, the person is not a complete Sadiq and he himself has some, uh, some bad qualities, then he's not in a position to go and tell the Dasha 
of the bad things that he is doing. says, why do you look upon them that deal treacherously and remain silent when the wicked devours the man that is more righteous than he? You see that a wicked man can devour someone who's more righteous if it's only relative, um, but if he's absolutely righteous, then the wicked person cannot touch him. And so that is the second answer. And the third answer is, when the hour is smiling upon the wicked person, then he's going to be, he's gonna be uh, have, uh, have uh, success no matter what. Then you won't be able to bring him down. You have to wait for the right time, right? Uh, when, when maybe Hashem is giving him a reward now only to bring him punishment later. And so you have to wait, wait for the right time to bring that person down. All right, and the last section before the Mishnah Amar Ula. Italia shel Yavan ze gadol shel Romi. Italy of Greece. When it says that, um, it's the all of what we call Italy, Italy today was part, owned by Greece. So here when it says Italy of Greece, it's referring to the southern half of the Italian peninsula and saying over there, there is a big giant city called Rome. Uh, there were Jews that lived in Rome and many Jews that rabbis that went to Rome. So they, they knew a fair amount, amount about it. It was a huge city. It was 300 parsa by 300 parsa, which would be like hundreds of miles big. So it might be exaggerating a bit, uh, but it was in fact a huge city. It had 365 marketplaces, you could go to a different one every day of the year. The smallest of all of them uh, sold poultry, like not just, you know, a, a small one that sold just nuts, right? Even the small one could had, had, had a, a poultry counter. And it was, and that, that market itself was 16 by 16 meal. Interestingly, this was the, the measurement that we saw before of the Eres Avat Chalav Udvash of Tiveria. So you see that there's uh, bringing some comparisons here between the, the beauty of uh, Jerusalem, uh, of Israel, and the beauty of Rome. And the king can go every day in another one of the marketplaces to eat. Someone who lives there, even if you weren't born there, just living there, you get an allowance from the king to live. And also, if you were born there, even if you don't live there, you get government benefits, uh, right? Those will be Roman citizens and they get lots of benefits. So that's how rich a city it was, took care of everyone, um, citizens and residents. There were 3,000 bathhouses. Uh, 500 uh, tall windows that would let the smoke out so that it would go up beyond the walls and they wouldn't have to smell the smog from fires. One side of the border, uh, one side of the city was a sea, the other side mountains and hills, one side iron, another side gravel and swamp. So you see how it just had uh, diversity of uh, environments and just a big, beautiful and great city. And so, yes, it was very impressive. And that, I guess, made it all the more scary when the Romans were, uh, were not on the side of Jerusalem, uh, which happened sometimes. Although uh, there were lots of other times when, uh, when uh, the Roman emperors did support and, and, um, and uh, give uh, backing to, to the Jewish leaders. And so those were better times. All right, and now we get to the next Mishnah. So they read Megillah on the first Adar, but then they decided on the spot that, you know what? Spring is, uh, is still far off. We, we're not really ready to celebrate uh, uh, Pesach yet. We need to add another Adar. And so they go and add one. You have to reread the Megillah on the second Adar. That's the point, that reading of the Megillah has to be done in Adar Bet, anytime there's two. 
אין בן אדר ראשון אדר השני, אלא קריאת המגילה, מתנות אביונים. And now we have a general rule, there's no difference between the first אדר and the second אדר, except for reading the מגילה, has to be done in the second, and מתנות אביונים, giving to the poor, also has to be done in the second. We already saw why, that these two are connected, that the poor people are always going to come and expect to receive charity funds when the Megillah is being read. And therefore, whenever you're reading Megillah, and that, since that has to be in the second Adad, so too, Matanot Levyodim have to be in the second Adad. However, other parts, other celebrations and readings and uh, aspects of Purim, those can be done in the first or the second. It doesn't matter. Okay, so that's Tanakama, and we're going to analyze who is the author of this Badaita, of this Mishnah. So we first make an inference. Uh, since it doesn't say anything in this Mishnah about the four parashiyot that we read, Shekalim, Zachor, Para, and Hachodesh, right? We read all those around the time of Adar. And the question is, do you read them in Adar Aleph or Adar Bet? So it sounds like it doesn't matter. You can read them uh, this time or that time. So now we ask, Mane Matnitin, who is the author of this Mishnah uh, from the list of different opinions that we're going to see in the following Braita? And we start off right from the top saying it's going to be a problem. It can't be any of these three. This is a fantastic way to start off a lecture, all right? To, it's kind of a surprise. It can't be anybody. Everybody's like, what? What are you talking about? Who's going to be the author of the Mishnah? Um, we're going to see this as a rhetorical device uh, to put everybody in the stensa in the uh, in the state of suspense, and then they will be more more easy more easily uh, able to accept the final answer. We're going to actually see that two of the three can be the correct answer. Uh, but in order to do that, we want to first wipe the slate clean and say it can't be anybody, and then be more open to accepting not just one but two. So let's see the beraita and see who could be the author. Detanya karuta megillah ba'adar harishon. They read the Megillah in the first Adad, and then they decided to add a second Adad. You have to read it again in the second Adad. Why? Because any of the mitzvot that you can do in the second month can also be done in the first. In other words, everything else like Seuda uh, and uh, Mishloach um, Manot, all those, and you know, uh, maybe reading of the of the four parashiot also. Anything that you could do in the second, you could do in the first. So if you did in the first, it's fine, except for the reading of Megillah. The reading of the Megillah has to be in the second month. Now, does this fit with the Mishnah? Well, it does, except for that the Mishnah mentioned Matanot Levyonim. That has to be in the second. And here it says all mitzvot except reading Megillah can be done in the first, which sounds like Matanot Levyonim can be in the first. And that's why Tanakama cannot be the same as the Mishnah. Okay, we're going to end up saying that, you know what, it can be. And most likely that is what it is, uh, because you don't have to necessarily say Matanot Levyonim, since that always goes together with Mikra Megillah. Right? They're always a pair, because the poor people are looking when, when they're going to be reading to receive uh, their funds. And so really it could be compatible. But right now we're being sticklers about this and saying, doesn't say Matanot Levyonim, therefore it can't be Tanakama. So let's try second opinion. He says, no, you do not read it in second, uh, second Adar. You have to read Megillah in first Adar because anything that is done in the second month has, can be done in the first month. And so, therefore, if you read it in the first month, no need to read it in the second month. Forget about it. You don't have to. And so this is totally against the Mishnah because it is a month one guy. And uh, the Mishnah said, well, it's okay for other things, but Mikra Megillah has to be done in the second. So for sure, the Be'aliyah is not the author. Now, let's try the third one. Rabban Shimon ben Gamaliel says you should also read Megillah on the second month when you have an added one. Why? He says anything in the sec- that you do in the second month, can, may not be done in the first month. The only thing they agree on is that you can't cannot fast or eulogize both on the four in the in the fourteenth and fifteenth of the first month and the second month. So regarding usually yes, a happy day. But Abi Shimon is a month two guy. He says everything uh, that that you can do in the second month 
you should do and you cannot do in the first month. So for sure, he doesn't have to mention anything in particular, for sure, Mikra Megillah, and for sure also, Matanot um, Levyonim. Uh, uh, but the problem with him is now he sounds like he's saying everything is in the second month, whereas the Tanakama said, no, only Mikra Megillah Matanot Levyonim. So uh, to, to sum up why it can't be any of anybody, uh, can't be Tanakama because he's almost the same except Matanot Levyonim. He uh, doesn't talk about, and Mishnah says Matanot Levyonim should be in month two. Rabbi Eliezer is a month one guy. Everything is on month one, even Megillah. Rabbi Rashbag is a month two guy. Everything is month two. And that's too, too far the other to the other extreme. So he can't be the author either. So now that we have this problem, uh, we have a quick question. Doesn't Ashbag look a lot like Tanakama? Aren't they the same? Um, oh, the reading of the four parshiot, that would make a difference between them. Best you should read it in the second, but if you read the four parshiot in uh, first Adar, it's okay, but the Avad. All, all the readings are okay, except for Megillah itself. That has to, even if you read in the first, has to be in the second. is a month one guy. So even Megillah Megillah has to be in the first. The Bashbag is a month two guy all the way. And even the four parshiyot, even if you read them already on the first, you have to read them again on the second. Everything has to be in the second month. So that's why you see that there is a difference between Tanakhama and uh, Rashbag. Oh, the only thing they have in common is that they say uh, the Mikra Megillah has to be in the second month. So now, Mane, who is the author, finally, of the Mishnah? We first are going to reject everybody. If you say Tanakhama, then we're going to have the problem of giving gifts to the poor. Because uh, but, uh, the Mishnah said gifts to the poor happen in the second, and uh, the Tanakhama didn't mention them, which sounds like he would be okay with them being in the first. If you follow the Eliezer, he says even Mikra Megillah should be in the first Adar. So that for sure is totally against the Mishnah, which says Megillah has to be in the second Adar. If you Shbag, then according to him, even the order of reading the parshiot has to be in the second Adar. And from the simple, simple reading of the Mishnah, it sounds like they can be in the first month of the four parshiot. So it can't be him either. And now we give the first of two answers. Really can be Tanakama. And the author of our Mishnah, who said just reading Megillah, he meant, of course, also giving money to the poor because they are dependent on each other. The poor always come to collect money when the reading of the Megillah. So therefore, everyone would agree that those two things have to happen during second Adar. And even though uh, Tanakhama didn't mention it explicitly, uh, that's what they meant. So Tanakhama did not mention it. Mishnah does mention it. Um, but it's implied in the words of the Tanakhama. So that could be the author. And really, that was a simple reading all along. But now that we did all this exercise and said, wait, it's nobody. Now we're like more open to looking for any other possibility. And we want the second possibility because we're going to end up saying halacha is like him. And now Mishnah is missing words or you have to fill in the following as commentary. And what it means to say is, there's no difference between the 14th of the month one and the 14th of month two, except for reading Megillah and giving to the and giving gifts to the poor. That there has to be on the second. Regarding not fasting uh, and mourning, that is the same both months. But regarding the four readings, the other readings that happened during the month on Shabbat, we're not even talking about that. See, because the Mishnah is only focusing on what is the difference between the two months regarding what is usually done on the 14th of Adar, and we're not talking about the rest of the month of those parshiyot. So yes, there would be a difference between our Mishnah and Rashbag regarding the other months. Rashbag says it has to be in the second month, and uh, Mishnah wouldn't say that, 
But anyway, the Mishnah is not, not talking about that at all because it's only talking about the 14th and therefore the Ashbag is compatible with the Mishnah. Okay, so while this is a bit of a forced reading because you have to limit the, the time scope that the Mishnah is talking about, it is a possible reading. And the reason why we go through this whole exercise this is to say, uh, not jump to a conclusion that Tanakhama is the author because that is a correct a conclusion to jump to, because it does seem the closest to the author. Um, but we want to uh, keep that out of the way first so that you'll be more open to accepting Rashbag as a possibility. And that is a good thing to do because we say that's the halacha. That is the halacha and has to be read during the second, um, right? The second adar is the main adar for all of the um, all of the practices regarding Purim. Now, uh, both opinions, both Rashbag and Eliezer, who emphasizes the first month, they both learn it from the same pasuk that says that you have to observe Purim every day, the 14th and the 15th, the same every year. So to be Eliezer, who's the month one guy, he says on and most years, uh, Adar is right after Shivat. And so, so too, when there's two Adars, which one is going to be the real Adar? Adar Aleph, the one that's closer to Shivat. It should always be closest to Shivat. He says, no, in uh, most years when there's only one Adar, Adar is right before Nisan. And so too, when there's two Adars, we're going to follow the same principle and pick the real Adar to be the second one because that will be the closest to Nisan. Okay, so they, you know, they both are making comparisons to other years, but other years actually do have both of those aspects. Which one is more important? We understand that Eliezer says they should do the first Adar because you should not forego on mitzvot. Do it at the first opportunity. Why do you want to wait another month? You have an opportunity now to do it now, so do it as soon as possible. But why did what Rashbag say? You have to wait till the second Adar. Uh, his reason is because it's better to uh, put one story of redemption right next to another story of redemption. Purim is a story of redemption during the Persian period, uh, done in, uh, during Hastarat Panim uh, for, because of the great leadership of Mordechai and Esther. And Pesach is also a story of redemption uh, and at that time with, uh, with Moshe and also the great leadership of the righteous woman at that time and uh, with the plagues and miracles. So both of these are paradigms of redemption and therefore it's most fitting to celebrate them back to back. And that is the reason why we prefer reading the Megillah during the second Adar. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.